Okay, if you got your Bibles, open to Matthew chapter 21. Matthew 21, and then 2 Samuel chapter 12. We will keep rolling on in our story uh, of David uh, as the man after God's own heart, about Bathsheba and Uriah, uh, and then also about Absalom ultimately, uh, and uh, how the Lord was redeeming David's family. Um, Just want to point this out before we get started. Um, Just as kind of a theme for what we're going to go through today, we're going to talk about kind of the walk back after you've made a mistake and what that looks like. David's going to lay that out for us perfectly. Uh, But you need to know one of the most powerful lies of the devil is you are not good enough. You are not good enough. And can I tell you why it catches such strength? Because it's also a true statement that we are not good enough. And so it's a lie of the enemy because if you have Jesus Christ, the full statement is you are not good enough on your own. That's the picture. We're not good enough on our own, but through the shed blood of Jesus Christ, we are made holy. We are made righteous through him. But the enemy likes to leave that last part off. He likes to leave the name of Jesus out of it. And he just whispers in our ear, you're not good enough. What we're going to talk about today specifically is David, after going through all the mess that he had gone through with Bathsheba, after the mess he'd gone through, not going off to war when he was supposed to, the shame of that, after sleeping with Bathsheba, after getting her pregnant, trying to cover it up, and then after killing her husband, after uh, enabling her husband uh, to be murdered, and then covering that up to the point that he takes Bathsheba in as his wife uh, and uh, comforts the widow and then gets celebrated by the rest of the country as the one who has taken in the widow of the man that he has killed, and then just pretending like all of that was supposed to happen that way, the shame of everything, it then, unroll, it then unravels uh, when Nathan the prophet uh, in 2 Samuel chapter 12 shows up, talks to David about uh, his sin, calls him out on it. David repents. The child that he and Bathsheba uh, had had together, uh, that child is seven days old, and David is grieving all of that. Everything that's taking place in the midst of that I promise you, David is hearing in his ear the whisper of the devil, you are not good enough. But remember, through the shed blood of Jesus Christ, or in David's case, the power of Yahweh, we are made good enough. We are not good enough on our own. It's why John 3.16 is so powerful, and we have you memorize it from the time your kid's around here. God loved the world so much that he sent his one and only son, that if anyone would believe in him... They would not perish, but they would have eternal life. You get in that verse so many powerful principles. One being that God Almighty loves you, that he is not vengefully looking to destroy you. If he wanted to do that, he could. I heard a statement this weekend from one of our speakers, John Strapazon. Strap said, you realize if God wanted to get you, he could. Isn't that interesting? It's a good word, isn't it? If you've ever had that feeling of maybe God's out to get me, Strap said, you need to know if God wanted to get you, he absolutely could. That's a powerful thing to remember. God loves you so much that he would send his son Jesus for you. That if you believed in him, you would be made righteous and your sin would be forgiven. So we're going to address a question today. Let's jump in. Um, Start off with this. Have you ever gotten off to a slow start at something before? Have you ever gotten off to a slow start at something before? 
Um, and uh, it's interesting from a spiritual perspective, sometimes that slow start has to do with you following Christ at an early age, making a bunch of good decisions, and then falling into sin and trying to figure out if you should get up and start running your race one more time. My dad said this years ago, and I think it was a good statement. He got saved at a young age also. And he said, you know, just by default, he said, as a 50 plus year old man, he said, the bulk of my sins since I got saved at seven, the bulk of my sins have happened since I was a believer in Jesus Christ. For some of you, the message is going to hit you hard today because you are a new believer and looking back on the baggage of your, uh, your consequences of the way that you've lived previously. But for a lot of us, if you got saved at a young age, what you're going to be looking at today, guys, is the situation where you lived for Christ, you started well, but then you had a lull and you got to get running again. You got to start recommitting uh, and run uh, your race one more time. But that poor start has caused you, that slow start has caused you to start to question, should I continue running the race at all? It's kind of a video game idea. You ever played video games before? We're a Mario family at our house, love playing Super Mario Brothers, uh, and uh, it's interesting. If you are playing a video game and you get off to a bad start, what is the tempting thing to do when you get off to a bad start? You just press that reset button, right? You just push that reset button and you just start it over. Autumn and I are Tetris players too. You play Tetris? You ever played Tetris before? When you accidentally drop that long bar in the wrong spot and it just completely messes up just about everything that you're doing, it's very, very tempting to just hit that reset button and start that thing over with a clean slate. Here's the problem. Life doesn't work that way, does it? Life doesn't work that way. You can't just hit the reset button. Through the shed blood of Jesus Christ, we can hit that reset button for eternity. But we can't hit that reset button. Each one of us just get one life. So what do you do when you know there's something that you should be doing for the kingdom of Almighty God, but you can't just hit the reset button? You have to decide either I'm going to try or I'm not going to try at all. I want to read you a powerful passage of scripture today. Matthew chapter 21. Let's look at verse 28, and it's going to be the lead in for our story about David. Look at what it says. Jesus starts it off. This is great. What do you think? Underline and highlight that statement. Jesus is letting the group that he's talking to know of religious leadership. He's wanting to look introspectively with this story. What do you think? There was a man who had two sons. He went to the first and said, son, go to work today in the vineyard. I will not, he answered. But later he changed his mind and he went. Then the father went to the other son and said the same thing. He answered, I will, sir. I love, I will, sir. Underline that. But he did not go. Which of the two did what his father wanted? The first they answered. Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth. The tax collectors and prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. For John came to show you the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes did. And even after you saw this, you did not repent and believe in him. Stop right there for just a minute. The picture that Jesus gives here is he says, if you are the type of person who up front, you make a mistake and you have a slow start. The dad comes in and says, son, I need you to go work in the vineyard today for the good of our family, for the good of our village, for the good of our kingdom, of our livelihood. I need you to go and serve in the vineyard. And the son goes, no, I'm not working in the stinking vineyard today. I'm doing what I want to do. But then later, has time to process it and thinks about it. Even though he has a slow start, he goes and he does what is right. The second son 
is the one who not only says the right things, but catch this, he says it the right way. He doesn't just say, I'll do it. He says, I will, sir. That sir on the end of it was that moment, that, that pleasantry, good manners, where he is not just saying the right things, but he says it the right way. But after time goes, yeah, I never planned on working in that stinking vineyard. And he stays back. The slow start with the strong finish Jesus says is the way we should be. My Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That means that not a single one of us has a perfect Tetris round when it comes to this life. Not one of us. We're all going to have those moments when we screw up and mess up, and we have to have the guts to get up and to run the race anyway. If you don't take anything else away from today, write this down. Are you ready? A poor start does not justify giving up on what's right. Let me say that again. A poor start does not justify giving up on what's right. Sometimes when we in a city like this where getting a good start is so important, sometimes if you don't get the right start, you are the type of person that settles in and goes, well, if it didn't start well, then why should I even try at all? If I can't be the youngest ever do this, if I can't be the best ever do this, if I can't be the smartest ever do this, if I can't be the most successful at this, if I can't run my absolute best spiritual time on this lap, then why should I even try at all? And again, that's a lie from the enemy that we would try is an act and a sacrifice of faith. And the Bible says, and without faith, it's impossible to please God. If it's right, we're called to try. It's a great little movie that came out years ago called Chariots of Fire. Do you remember Chariots of Fire? It's got one of the greatest creepy soundtracks ever, okay? Chariots of Fire, great sound, that dun, 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 but it's got all these, it's got all these different sounds to it. Go back and listen to it, great deal. In the story, it's a true story, you have runners that are trying to make the Olympics. And one of the scenes... Eric Liddell, who's the one who'll end up being the, the famous runner. He'll be the one that, that wins the whole thing. Eric Liddell has trained his whole life for this race, and it's the qualifier for the Olympics. And right out of the gate, he trips up right there at the very, very beginning of the race. You know what that means? That means that Eric Liddell is not going to run his best time. That means that he most likely is not going to make the Olympics. And that means that if anybody had a reason to not try, that would be the moment. But for him, you watch it. All of a sudden, the camera zooms in on his face. You can see the crowd. There's a hush and a gasp over the crowd. The one that was supposed to set the record all of a sudden is there on the track. And you watch it. Camera zooms in. And all of a sudden, the music, it just goes, it just holds one note just out to build the tension of the moment. And all of a sudden, you watch it. And the coach goes, get up. And you watch it. Eric Liddell then gets up, runs as fast as he's ever run before. And then because it's a very dramatic movie, he holds his arms out like this and runs the last part of it. I mean, it just is just this dramatic, dramatic moment. Wins, ends up finishing the race, qualifying for the Olympics, and the rest is history. Now, here's the picture. There are some of you who are at a point where you lived for God, but you've fallen down on the track. You've hit the canvas on the boxing ring. And I'm telling you, you're sitting there going, I was trying to run a perfect race. I was trying to do it with righteousness. I was trying to do it the right way. But sin and the things of this world have come in around you just like they do all of us. And it's hit you to the point where you go, Lord, should I just stay down? Should I even try? Should I even pursue righteousness? Should I even do what's right in this circumstance? Or should I just let it go? And here's the picture. Every day is the right day to do the right thing. Amen? 
Every day is the right day to do the right thing. Like Eric Liddell, you need to hop up off the track and you need to run your little hiney off because you might just make the Olympics, all right? That's the picture. If you're taking notes, write this down. Our big million-dollar question today. How does a recommitted disciple overcome a slow start? How does a recommitted disciple overcome a slow start? There's some of you in this room today that I know desperately need to hear this. You feel like damaged goods. You've come in with the enemy whispering in your ear, writing in your mail, you are not good enough. And you've forgotten you are not good enough on your own. That through the shed blood of Jesus Christ, we are made righteous and you can return and be useful once again. How does, how does a recommitted disciple overcome a slow start? David's going to show us that. Flip over now to 2 Samuel chapter 12, and we're going to start in verse 26. Like I told you earlier, all that stuff David's been going through, everything that's been happening, but you also had a war going on at the same time. Now look at 2 Samuel 12, and let's look at verse 26. The very first word. What's the very first word that comes out in verse 26? It says, Meanwhile. Circle, underline, and highlight meanwhile. Can I tell you why meanwhile is so important? With all this personal stuff that David's been having to deal with, on the other side of the world is a war. On the other side of the, uh, the, other side of the area is a war with the Ammonites that's taking place that is a very, very personal war. You know how the war with the Ammonites started for David and his people? You can go back and read 2 Samuel chapter 10, 1 through 7, and figure out how that war started. The war started because the Ammonite king passed away. He and David were friends. And when the Ammonite king passed away, David goes, you know what? He was good to me. His son's taken over. I'm going to send a delegation. It'd be like us sending some State Department people. I'm going to send a delegation over uh, to tell him we're sorry for his loss and that we'll do whatever it takes to help them and protect them during this time. He sends the delegation over. They've got big, long Semitic beards. They've also got this, what would be a, a fancy dress, be like a, a dress uniform that they wear over. And when they walk into the city to offer sympathy, all this sudden we have this moment where as they walk in, uh, the Ammonite king, young man, sees and a guy around him goes, hey man, I think they're here to spy out the city so they can rob us. I think they're going to steal from us. And then the Ammonite king goes, well, we can't have that. He then goes, has the men captured, shaves off their beard in the middle so it looks like one of those big Civil War mustaches, shaves it off in the middle, a beard that would have taken them years to grow. And then he takes their dress uniform and has them cut it off just right under the chest at about the belly button so that they are exposed and nude on the front and the back. In Jewish culture, nudity was a really big no-no. He has humiliated them. And then David, still keeping a cool head about it, David goes back and he goes, well, um, surely they didn't do this for the reason that we think they did it. So David then says to the men, instead of coming back and stirring a panic, instead of causing a war with the Ammonites, he says, how about this? How about you guys stay until your beards grow back enough for you to walk back into the city and not cause a panic? How about we get you a new pair of clothes? I'm really sorry for the humiliation you've experienced, but let's probably not jump into war over this thing. And instead, the Ammonites rally together about 40,000 troops and they march against Israel. So here's what you got to know. The story of David and Bathsheba is a really intense personal struggle for David and for his household. But there's a whole other thing going on 
that David is also having to juggle as the king of the nation of Israel and this humiliation and this area-wide war that has broken out because of what has been done with the Ammonites. I had a pastor that said this over the years, and it's a good thing to remember. He used to say, ministry doesn't happen in a vacuum. Can I tell you why that's important? Because your personal issues, your family issues, your marriage issues, your work issues, none of that happens in a vacuum. There are a billion things going on all at the same time. And for David, the Lord has been very gracious to allow him to walk this path of redemption and repentance in his own life. But there is something else going on that he also has to handle and has to take care of for you in your own life. Focus on what the Lord has for your individual soul, but know that he will also bring about redemption in your other relationships as well as the time is right. Now look at what happens in the rest of verse 26. Meanwhile, well, David's going through all this stuff, all this personal stuff. Meanwhile, Joab, that's the head of the army, fought against Rabbah and the Ammonites and captured the royal citadel. So Joab then sent messengers to David, look at this, saying... I have fought against Rabbah and taken its water supply. Now you muster the rest of the troops and besiege the city and capture it. Look at what he says. Otherwise, I will take the city and I will name it and it will be named after me. Underline, otherwise, I will take the city and it will be named after me. You got to picture this. David's going through all his stuff, his personal issues in Jerusalem. And here we've got Joab with the army, surrounding the Ammonites, trying to stop the war that's been taking place over apart from the country. And Joab looks and says, David, we've been hearing at the army, we've been hearing word about everything you've been going through in your personal redemption. But we still have a war going on over here. You're still the king in Israel. And he comes back and says, either you show up and claim this area for our nation, claim the end of the war for our nation. He goes, or I'm naming it Joabville and we're going to have two countries. That's what he says here. Now listen to me. If you don't catch anything, catch this. How does a recommitted disciple overcome a slow start? Number one, return to the mission immediately. Return to the mission immediately. Why does David not want to go back to the battle lines? Look at my eyes for just a minute. Because all those men have heard rumors of the stupid stuff he's been doing when he should have been off at war. The people in Jerusalem are experiencing David's redemption. The people that have circled the Ammonite city, these men are sitting there going, you made us complicit in the murder of our fellow soldier. They're sitting there going, we've heard stories of you sleeping around when you told us to take oaths that we wouldn't sleep with our spouses until the work was done on the battlefield. And David is told by Joab, you make the walk of shame to the men that are still hurting from the poor decisions that you've made. It's the reason why a committed disciple is set free through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. But listen to me. But sometimes there are still some of those walk of shame moments you have to make in the power of Almighty God because it's the right thing to do. So Joab tells David, return to the mission immediately. If you're taking notes, write this down. Are you ready? Until a disciple submits to the Spirit's leading, they will have no peace and often empty success. Until a disciple submits to the Spirit's leading, they will have no peace and often empty success. There are some of you in this room, and it's time that you go home. There are some individuals in your life, and I've got them in mind too, 
that symbolize a failure or a sin era in your life. And it's time God is calling you to make the walk and finish the reconciliation process. This is power if you're listening to it. Notice the goodness of God. What the Lord does for David is he allows him to heal personally before he calls on him to go to the army that he has betrayed, the people that he has hurt directly with his actions. Until a disciple submits to the Spirit's leading, they will have no peace and often empty success. No better example of that, and I've given it to you through this study, than the prodigal son. Remember, the prodigal son says that he wants uh, his inheritance early, goes and squanders it on wild living, and then when does the prodigal son wake up? The prodigal son, after he spent all his money, it's slopping the hogs, and as he's laying in the slop pit, it says that then he looks at the pods, he looks at the slop that the hogs are eating, and he longs to put it in his own belly. He wants to eat the trash because he's so hungry. Well, all of a sudden, in that moment, he wakes up and says, you know what, my father's hired hands. My father's indentured servants have better meals than I have right here and right now. If he decides to stay and wallow, he will starve to death in that slop hole. But instead, he rises up and says, you know what? My hired hands have it better than I do. I'm going to walk home and I'm going to tell my father, I'm not even worthy to be called your son. Please receive me back in just like one of your hired hands. I've got to make the walk because I can't live in this any longer. Some of you, you just need to follow the path of David. It's time to return to the mission. Get where you're supposed to be. Another great example of that is Jonah. Sometimes we read Jonah and we read it like children's ministry. We teach that story to kiddos. But you got to read it as an adult. You know why Jonah hated the Ninevites so much? The Ninevites brutally tortured and murdered Jonah's family members. What they would do is they would pour hot tar and then light them on fire. That was what happened. So when the Lord comes to Jonah in his great mercy and says, go and tell the Ninevites, tell them about my forgiveness. Tell them about repentance. Jonah sits there and he goes, uh, no, forget it. They tortured my family. And if they had me, they would torture me as well. Jonah says, I would rather die than give this to the Ninevites. So what does he do? He goes and he moves in the opposite direction. He falls down. He slows down. He has a slow start. He heads off in the complete opposite direction. And remember, Jonah's on the boat. All of a sudden, they figure out that Jonah's the cause of this problem. And read this like an adult. Jonah then comes back and he goes, yep, it's me that's caused this storm that's about to kill us all. If you'll throw me overboard, he says, then everything will be calm and the winds will stop blowing. Well, you got to catch this. That's not Jonah saying, sacrifice me and then it'll all be fine. That's Jonah looking and saying, God, I'd rather die than go to Nineveh. Throw me overboard. I would like to commit suicide rather than to go forward in this. So they throw Jonah overboard. He's there in the water. The storm and the sea stop. And Jonah goes, yep, here I am. I'd rather die than go to Nineveh. And God goes, yeah, right. Gulp. Swallows him in a fish. Don't miss this. How many days is Jonah in the belly of the fish? Three days. You know why three days is important? There's all sorts of fun biblical number examples. You know why that number is really important to me as someone who's stubborn? Jonah is so stubborn. It takes three days before he prays in the belly of the fish. Days where he's going, Lord, I would rather die. And the Lord looks back at him and says, Jonah, you can't even take your own stinking life unless I allow it. 
Jonah finally comes to grips with the fact that God is God and he is not. And that's where we get the powerful prayer in Jonah chapter 2. Jonah 2 verse 8 is one of my favorite verses. It's a sneaky little verse. You ready for this? It says, Jonah prayed from the belly of the fish. You ready? Jonah 2 8. Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that would be theirs. You know why that's important? That is the prayer of a stubborn person. And some of you is stubborn people out there. Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that would be theirs. You know what Jonah's idol was? This is so interesting. It was racism. He hated the Ninevites just because of who they are. His idol was hatred. His idol was anger. And Jonah says, from the belly of the fish, after being digested for three days but unable to die, he says, Lord, those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that would be theirs. I will do what you've told me to do, Yahweh. And Yahweh goes, good, and throws him up on land. <laughs> Listen to me. Big question. Is there somewhere you should be? Is there somewhere you should be? A mission that you need to return to. You realize blessing, it says in Scripture, that rain falls on the righteous and the unrighteous. You don't earn God's blessing. He bestows it. He gives it. Peace and joy. Those are things that come to us when we walk in step with the Holy Spirit. When we follow Almighty God in His direction. When we are obedient. There's some of you that have no peace. You have no joy. You have empty success. And it's because you know there's somewhere you should be right now. There's something that God has called you to, something God's called you to do, some place he's called you to go. In David's case, he needed to go back to the battle. Now look at what happens next. Look at 2 Samuel 2, and let's, or 2 Samuel 12, and now let's look at 29 and 30. This is so good. Are you ready for this? It says, so David mustered the entire army. Underline mustered the entire army. And he went to Rabbah. And he attacked and captured it. Stop right there for just a second. Um, if any of you have ever been a part of an anonymous organization before where you are trying to fight and break addiction, what's the first thing they do in that anonymous organization? You tell your story and they give you a sponsor. They put somebody with you to help you through that journey and they attach you to the group to help you walk through the journey. What's so interesting here, remember, David shows up and they all they've known of him is, man, David's the one who had us assist in killing our friend so that he could cover something up. That army is not a safe place for him to go. So what does David do? He doesn't just go to them. He brings everybody. He musters the entire army that's been in there in Jerusalem to watch him go through his redemption process. He gathers merciful men around him so that he can go and meet with the ones who have a tendency to be hostile. He has friends as he goes into this, not to fight for him, but people who understand what he's been walking. It's a beautiful story there. Now look at what happens in verse 30. It says, so he took the crown from the head of their king. Its weight was a talent of gold, and it was set with precious stones, and it was placed on David's head. He took a great quantity of plunder from the city. Now stop right there for just a minute. Why is it important for Joab not to get the city, but for David to be the one who gets the city? Because Joab symbolizes a split in the country, and David symbolizes the gift of the kingship to the nation of Israel. Not to David personally, 
not to his household. David's job in the midst of everything he's been going through is that he would show up, the crown would be placed on his head, and then the battle and the war could finally be over. It wasn't about David getting his name on the city. It was about God getting the glory and the people staying unified. That was David's responsibility. If you're taking notes, how does a recommitted disciple overcome a slow start? Number one, return to the mission immediately. And number two, assume your responsibilities with urgency. Assume your responsibilities with urgency. I guarantee you, beyond his fear that the men would kill him, it took a lot of courage for David because he goes, I'm not worthy to wear that crown. I'm not worthy to be the one that receives that honor for Israel after what I've done. But if he doesn't, it causes a split and a rift in the kingdom. Listen to me. There are some of you in this room, and you have incredible spiritual gifts. Absolutely incredible. But you went through a divorce, or you went through a major issue at work, you got fired. Or you said something to a religious leader that you shouldn't have said. Or you had an issue with your parents, an issue in dating. And you sit there and you go, Lord, I've found repentance in you. Lord, you've cleaned me up. But I'm not worthy to serve you any longer. I'm not worthy to lead for you and your kingdom. Look at me. That's a lie straight from the pits of hell. If you're taking notes, write this down. You are not doing God any favors by hiding your gifts and talents. You are not doing God any favors by hiding your gifts and talents. If David doesn't let them put the crown on his head, there's a civil war in the nation of Israel. Do you hear me? If David doesn't let them put the crown on his head, there's a civil war in the nation of Israel. What a powerful word. When you feel like, Lord, I'm just kind of hiding out. I'm just kind of doing my thing. What I've done, I've got a past. Again, my Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The only perfection, the only perfect one is Jesus himself. Now, there are some things that can cause you to slow in leadership just a bit. But the idea that you would never use your gifts and talents, my Bible says being confident of this, that he who started the good work will be faithful to complete it in you. If he's given you a gift, he is not going to waste it. Great little movie <laughs> um, I love called The Martian. You ever seen The Martian before? Uh, Matt Damon, he's on Mars, but he gets left on Mars. Uh, it's basically Robinson Crusoe in space, you know? And uh, we had somebody uh, uh, in NASA for last service, and I got some other NASA folks down here. They're always like, that's the worst. Scientifically, it just doesn't work, all right? Beautiful story, all right? So it's a movie. It's not true, all right? Just laying that out there. Um, we got some people really going to Mars, but, but Zach, it's, it's still a good movie, right? Yeah, yeah, there, there it was. That, that was. that was what I was expecting. Yeah, you know, anyway, I like it, all right? Robinson Crusoe in space. You had all this time to see it, so I'm going to spoil part of it for you. In the movie, Matt Damon gets left by his NASA counterparts on Mars because they think he's dead because he gets this, this wire, this, uh, this antenna that sticks into his suit and then ends up knocking out his vitals. Well, when he finally wakes up, he's covered in sand and the sand has caused him to keep the pressure in his suit. And the way the story goes, he gets up, He's left on Mars. He's able to do the math in his head that he's going to have to survive five years in order to be able to even have a shot at getting back to Earth. And he just gets really scared. 
He just gets so nervous. Again, he returns to the habitat. He returns to the mission. But all of a sudden, it's like, what should I do? And he's laying in bed. And I remember the scene. It's so interesting. He'll be in the same hab for the next five years. But he's laying there, and he's got this moment where he sees the lights flashing. You can hear the storm swirling outside. And Matt Damon does a great job with his eyes of portraying. He's afraid. He's scared. He's nervous. In fact, he's just eating a really big meal when he gets back to the habitat because he's basically like, I guess I'm eating my last meal. I guess I'm going to die out here. And he's laying in his bed, scared to death, and you watch it. All of a sudden, the music stops, and his eyes change. And he goes, yeah, I'm not going to die here. And he hops up from the bed, starts making a list of the million things he's going to have to do in order to even have a chance at survival. But you watch it. That turn in the instant is, I can do something. I might as well try. Returning to the mission is the first part of the struggle, making the decision you're going to try. But man, you also have to come to the point where you go, if I'm going to try, that means I'm going to serve. It means I'm going to plug in and use the giftings that God's given me for his glory and for his kingdom. You're not doing God any favors by hiding your gifts and talents. It's why when Jesus talks about that specifically in Matthew 25, he says the wicked servant is the one who digs a hole and hides what God has given them. You could have at least put it on at the bank and let it gain interest. But we dig a hole and we hide it. Not because we don't want to do good. Look at me. But because you don't feel like you're good enough. We're not good enough on our own. Through the shed blood of Jesus Christ, he makes us righteous. It begs the question, is there something you should be doing? Is there something you should be doing? Now, this is not the point when you go, I preached at the church before, and so, Zach, to be in my giftedness, I would like the pulpit next week, all right? (laughs) I preach here. You can find your own place, all right? (laughs) There's some of you who've led major initiatives. It's time to lead again. There's some of you who have incredible giftedness it's time to use it again. There's some of you who have incredible giftedness in in the way that you administrate. In fact, this city is full of that. It's time that you use those gifts again instead of hiding back and going, I guess I made a few mistakes, and so that means I can't ever serve ever again. It's a lie straight from the pits of hell. Is there something you should be doing? And then we have one last little verse. Look at 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 31. One last little verse, and it's the completion here of David's redemption process. It says, and out or and brought out, or excuse me, took the plunder and brought out of the people, or brought out the people who were there. Look at this, consigning them to labor, underline consigning them to labor with saws and with iron picks and with axes, and he made them work at brick making. He did this to all the Ammonite towns. Now stop for just a minute. At first glance, it looks like enslavement. Can I tell you what's actually happening here? Remember, this is a fight the Ammonites started because of the way they treated the delegation, because they rallied troops even when David tried to brush over the humiliation. Don't miss this. What David has done here is he is punishing them for their war crimes. He's saying to them, I've even provided a way back for you in redemption. Instead of us annihilating your whole group, instead... Now you're going to have to pay back the work that you're going to have to pay back the money that it cost us in these battles and these wars by you with brick making, with pickaxes. You're going to have to pay that off by you paying homage to the government. At that point, David has even provided a way back for the Ammonites. Look at what happens in the last little verse. The power is here at the very end of 31. 
It says, then David and his entire army returned to Jerusalem. Underline, then David and his entire army returned to Jerusalem. This passage is such a transition passage, and it starts with the prospect of civil war, and it ends with a unified Israel. Don't miss this. Those transition stories are some of the coolest in Scripture. Joab says to David, make the walk of shame. Come back to the battlefield where you should have been from the very beginning. If you don't do it, the country's going to be split. These guys are sticking with me, and the ones that are there with you in Jerusalem will stick with you. David makes the walk of shame. He receives the mercy of that crown being set on his head when he had done nothing to deserve it in that moment. And what's the payoff? At the end, he takes the peace that's been given to him, gives it to the Ammonites, And then it says they come home together. If you're taking notes, write this down. How does a recommitted disciple overcome a slow start? Number one, return to the mission immediately. Number two, assume your responsibilities with urgency. And number three, be part of the team again. Be part of the team again. For some of you, you made a mistake. It was very public. You faded out of the limelight. You've come back, you're starting to serve again, but you don't serve in the church, you serve on the outskirts because you feel like you don't deserve fellowship with other believers. If you're taking notes, write this down. A slow starter is not condemned to isolation for the duration of their journey. Let me say that again. A slow starter is not condemned to isolation for the duration of their journey. God's desire is not just that you would come back and serve but that you would serve in fellowship with other believers. You don't have to be isolated. He wants to bring you back into the fold. One last little story, and we'll call it a day. So my senior year in high school, um, we had a heavy moment. So there's some of you college and high school athletes will understand this. We had spent our whole athletic careers working towards our senior year. And my senior year, we got a brand new head coach. That's the worst, okay? Because of the coaching shift, we went from a power eye offense to a wishbone offense, and nobody wins in their first year with the wishbone offense. Our coach was so good, he would end up coaching at our high school, take us to the quarterfinals for the second time in the history of our school, and then he'd go from there, and he was the head coach at Midland Lehigh School, uh, just uh, down south from there. Great coach, great godly man, too. But that first year, it was awful. We were so much better, but we won only two games that entire year. And halfway through the season, we had only won one game, but we had a date circled on the calendar. I went to Monterey High School in Lubbock, and Lubbock High School, back in those days, Lubbock High had only beat Monterey like three times in 40 years. And so we had that date circled on the calendar as like, this is the for sure win. This one's going to happen. But there's something that's a great equalizer in Lubbock, Texas, and that is the wind, people, all right? The wind in Lubbock, Texas. The day of the game, it was a 40-mile-an-hour headwind, the day of the game. And if you had the wind, you did great. If you did not, you was in trouble. I'll never forget we had a punter that would end up punting for a University of New Mexico. And on the first punt of the game, he drops and kicks into the wind, and it goes for negative yardage. It was a negative yardage punt. It was awful. It's a true story. And so we have this just terrible situation. Well, they're not good, all right? We're better, better coach, stronger athletes. I mean, we had the history on our side as well, but that wind was the equalizer. And so I'll never forget, we already were low because we felt like we had lost our senior year to getting the new coach. 
There were two tip passes in that game that a receiver caught. Two tip passes that they ran in for touchdowns, and we lost 17-14 to 14 to Lubbock High School. My senior year, it was so humiliating. Well, after the game's over, everybody's so competitive. All of a sudden, you're just feeling it. It was like, this was the worst ever. This is humiliating. Everybody's cheering on the other side like they won the Super Bowl. I think that was the only game they won the whole year, and it was against us. So we're so low, and then finally, one of the seniors comes in, packs up his pads, chunks them on the floor, and he says, I quit. Well, here's the deal. I quit was how we all felt, quitting on the game, quitting on what we experienced. That's what I quit meant. But the problem is... All of a sudden, it stirs through the group, and we got a quarter of the team that quits the team that night. One of my dearest friends comes over, and he goes, what are you going to do? I said, man, I love to play. I said, there's no way. I said, today's an awful day. But I said, I'm sticking it out. I said, there's no way I'm quitting. After it's over, I mean, you look back, that coach could have lost his job. You lose a quarter of the team on one game. I mean, it was a dark, dark time. I'll never forget, we come to practice the next day, and when we're there, we come to practice on Monday, all of a sudden, six of the guys that had quit show back up, and they want back on the team. Well, we're all over there, and we're like, no way, man. Forget it. You quit. We don't need you. We don't need your kind out here. Get out of here. We don't want quitters. We want people that are committed to this team. And the six guys are wanting to path back. And I'll never forget our coach. This is probably not legal now, all right? But back in 99, all right? Our coach comes up and he said, everyone deserves a second chance. He said, but you're going to have to earn it. He said, you want back? He said, you're going to have to do forward rolls. Football is about 120 yards long from end of end zone to the other end end zone. He said, you just got to do forward rolls. The guys were like, yeah, we can do that. He goes for an hour and a half. End to end. Hour and a half while we were practicing on the field that was next to it. So we watched them the whole time. All six of those guys roll, roll. Roll, and about every 15 minutes, they would puke their guts up on the side. Roll, 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 puke. Roll, 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 puke. And we're watching this thing unfold. And what had started off as us going, man, forget it. You're not one of us. Forget it. You don't deserve to be here. Forget it. We don't want to be around you. All of a sudden, watching them make the walk. Don't miss it. I'm teaching you power if you're listening. All of a sudden, by the end of the hour and a half, we'd all watched them suffer. We'd all watched them crawl. We'd all watched them vomit. When they blew the final whistle, we all ran, put our arms around them, lifted them up, and walked them to the locker room. We were unified again. What's so interesting, the devil whispers in your ear, why would you go back? You won't receive mercy. Why would you go back? All they're going to do is stomp you into the ground. All they're going to do is beat you the same way that you beat them. Listen to me. Our God brings mercy, and he does it many times through, one of, through each one of us. We watched him. We saw the repentance, and then all of a sudden, we could be unified again. Ecclesiastes 4.12 says, a cord of three strands is not easily broken. The enemy's got to keep us separated, because when we connect to one another and Almighty God, 
He cannot rip us apart. He cannot destroy us. It begs the final question today. Is it time you rejoin the group? Is it time you rejoin the group? None of you are more holy because you are staying away from the godly. Come home. Join the group. Be part of the team once again. Thanks for listening today. We're about to jump in and we will move forward in our study of Absalom. But David does pretty good here. With the mess he made, the Lord cleans it up in dramatic fashion. We just got to go home. Let's bow our heads for prayer.